says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue now in this time of worship, as we open the word of God, that our attention to you and wanting to hear what your spirit would say to us through the word of God this morning would be just as much an act of worship in this very moment. So help us now, Lord, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular section of your word. We pray you take away the distractions and things that would hinder us from hearing your voice speaking directly and personally to our hearts. Bless your word, we ask, believing you want to and will in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, the good news is that because there is an empty tomb, that no person on this earth honestly has to have an empty life. Because there is an empty tomb, no person on this earth has to have an empty life. Because Jesus rose again from the dead, his present life can give hope and strength and power and help to us for each and every one of our lives, even in this very present day. And I think we see that and we'll talk about that as we go through our text this morning. The backdrop to chapter 20 of John is important. Jesus, just a few days prior on Friday, has endured brutal abuse from men. It began with false accusations. Then it began a severe whipping or scourging process where Jesus was brutally whipped 39 times. He was then blindfolded and punched in the face repeatedly, unable to see the punches coming to move with them, but taking the full brunt of them as he was punched by different soldiers. He then actually had chunks of his beard ripped out of his face. He was spit upon repeatedly. He was mocked and made fun of publicly, stripped of his clothing and humiliated. And yet silently Jesus endured all that painful mistreatment, though he was completely innocent. He never reviled back. He never resisted it. And after enduring an entire night of painful suffering, then Jesus was crucified, which we know historically was probably one of the most, if not the most horrible and torturous forms of slow execution with prolonged suffering as a person would die upon a cross. 
And in all these things, Jesus, we know, was being put to death as the sacrificial lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. It was all necessary so that our sin, our wrongdoing, our guilt could be removed. In love, Jesus was offering his life as a substitute for ours, allowing himself to be punished for my mistakes and for your failures and the things that we're guilty of that we deserve punishment for. He stepped in, took our place so that we would have the opportunity to be freed from the punishment we deserve. And there on the cross, the Bible told us Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, right before he died, he uttered these three words. He said, it is finished. It's one word in the original Greek text. It's tetelestai and it translated paid in full or completed or fulfilled. In other words, as Jesus was dying on the cross as the sinless son of God in our place as a substitute, sacrificing his life instead of ours, he knew that what was needed to satisfy God's righteous justice against the sin of all humanity was completed. It was paid in full. Nothing else needed to be done. And now, because of what Jesus has done, the eternal debt has been satisfied and Jesus can freely offer to anyone who believes upon what he did for themselves the opportunity to have forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life if they believe what Jesus did was done for them personally for them specifically, that they needed what Jesus did for them. Now, once he died, we then saw two wealthy and prominent men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who were Jesus' followers, wanted to give him a dignified burial. So they come to Pilate. They ask permission of his body. And chapter 19 then records for us at the end of John's gospel, it says they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, the day before Passover, for the tomb was nearby. Mark 15 tells us that after they put Jesus' body in the tomb, they then rolled the stone, a large disc-like stone weighing upwards to a few tons. They rolled that in front of the doorway of the tomb. And Mark 15 and Luke 23 also tell us, leading into John 20 in their account, that Mary Magdalene, who we read of here now, and other women observed where they had laid Jesus. And they took note of where his body was placed, where he was buried. They then returned, because it was the Sabbath day coming upon them, to prepare spices and anointing oils because they wanted to then go back after the Sabbath was done and finish anointing his body according to the custom of the Jews to bury in a more proper and complete way because of their love for him. Well, look with me, chapter 20, verse 1, where we pick up this morning. It says, now on the first day of the week, and we, of course, know that as Sunday, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. So very early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, it tells us here, even before daylight comes, heads back to the tomb in complete darkness because I think she probably couldn't sleep the whole night long. 
She was so anxious wanting to go back and finish the embalming process of his body out of love for him. She's just lost someone so important to her. She probably couldn't sleep anyway. So she gets up while it is still completely dark and she heads back now to the tomb. Now, Mary Magdalene, the Bible tells us in other accounts, was actually a woman who Jesus had delivered, it actually says, from seven demons. Now, I wouldn't like the company of one demon, let alone to have not two, but three, but seven demonic, unclean spirits residing within you. And yet Jesus had powerfully, miraculously delivered her from that condition. Now, we don't know what type of lifestyle she might have lived prior to that. We don't know maybe what kind of dark things she had been involved in, what led to the condition, but it was a miserable existence. Every day to live life ruled and dominated by these dark spiritual forces controlling her within. And then one day she met Jesus and a powerful work of the Lord happened in her life. And that miserable condition, that darkness inside, everything that was dominating and ruling her life, she was set free of by Jesus and all of that was, was completely removed from her life and she was made a brand new person, liberated, set free. And because of that, we can understand what gratitude this woman would have for the Lord. What incredible love she would have for Jesus because how much he had transformed her life. She was a deeply devoted woman to Jesus because of how he changed her and what he had done in her life. And having recently understand just watch Jesus suffer brutally and then be crucified and humiliated and disgraced and then die there upon the cross and be buried in a tomb at the gravesite. This woman's heart, understand, it's raw with emotion. Just like when you first lose a loved one, her heart is raw and tender with the loss of someone she loved deeply in death. She is heartbroken, but she wants to go to the tomb to show her love for the dead and to finish embalming and anointing his body with a proper anointing according to the custom of the Jews. But understand, as we read this, Mary is going to the tomb with a very heavy heart. She's not going to the tomb to celebrate Easter and resurrection like you and I are today. She's going there with a broken heart. She's watched Jesus suffer and die. And it seemed to her and to many who observed Jesus' death at the beginning that everything went wrong, that everything had fallen apart and all hope was lost. And the darkness of that early morning matched really the dark and dismal perspective that she probably had as she went to that tomb grieving that first morning early on Sunday, it seemed really dark and everyone felt very disheartened because of the circumstances that had recently happened. And perhaps this morning, I don't know, maybe this morning things seem really dark in your life. And maybe recently something has happened, a circumstance or disappointment or you're going through something right now and, and you are very disheartened. And though it's a holiday, still you are discouraged and it seems that there are dark clouds surrounding your life and maybe you've come here, but yet your heart is weighed down with the darkness and the discouragement and a sense of despair because of what's going on in your life. Listen, I want to encourage you if that's true, just keep walking forward in faith 
And please know that something wonderful the Lord has ahead of you if you press forward and keep going onward. It's always darkest right before the dawn. And that's not only true circumstantially, that is often true spiritually many times as well. Well, when Mary arrives at the tomb, it says there in verse 1 that she saw, imagine this, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran, it says, and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, verse 2, whom Jesus loved. Now, we know that's John. He's called himself that many times. And she said to them, probably quite emotionally, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. So she arrives to the tomb. She now has her second traumatic experience. She shows up. And much to her dismay, this massive stone that was in front of the tomb has been moved away. The tomb is open and Jesus' body is gone. His body's not there, which instantly leads her to think someone has stolen the body of her beloved Lord. Now, again, please experience with Mary what she's experienced. That would be like, imagine today, you have a loved one die. And you go to the grave site for the burial to lay their body to rest. And then a few days later, you go back to their grave site where you just were and saw them put to rest because maybe you want to honor their life or have a little personal time or closure there. And when you come to the grave site of your loved one who was just buried two, three days ago, you find the entire grave site dug up. The casket is opened and their body is gone. I mean, the shock you would feel, the, the anger and the fear and the, the just astonishment of something like that. Someone took their body. This is what Mary's feeling at this moment. She's in complete shock and dismay. She probably thinks that maybe Jesus' enemies wanting to further disgrace him have come and stolen his body away to just further dishonor him and his followers. Her instant reaction is that grave robbers have come and taken his body from the tomb. And being overwhelmed, she runs, it says in verse 2, back to the disciples, particularly Peter and John. And I can imagine her bursting through the door with incredible concern and emotion and saying to them, verse 2, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and, and we don't know where they've laid him, where they've put his body. Notice again at this point, she is not yet believing that Jesus is alive. She sincerely has no sense that Jesus has risen from the dead. In fact, it seems like a bad situation just got way worse. And in her heart and mind, she doesn't know the full story yet and she doesn't see the full plan of the Lord. And so often that's the case with us too. We don't see the full story. We don't know the full plan of the Lord and we have to go through a time of perhaps just walking forward, trying to figure things out. Well, look at the response now. The disciples, much the same. Verse 3, it says, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. So hearing this horrific news, Peter and John up and rush out the door they go running to the tomb because they as well are shocked and want to see the condition of the tomb and what's happened now john we know 
was likely the youngest of the disciples. Many think that John was perhaps even 15 to 20 years younger than Peter and the rest of the disciples, maybe in his late teens, young 20s, which would put Peter maybe in his perhaps 40s or so. And it is very interesting, though the Holy Spirit is leading the inspiration of the writing of Scripture, that is John's writing, he wants us to know in verse 3 who won the foot race. <laughs> you take notice of that? He says, well, we both were running, and uh, by the way, uh, that other disciple, he outran Peter, got there first. So he lets us know that he got to the tomb first, and Peter was kind of chugging along. Again, being a younger man, he just outran them as they were sprinting there. Well, verse 5 it says, when he arrived first, John this is, stooping down, looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but notice he did not go in. Again, John being more reserved in his personality from what we know of him in the scripture. Again, also being a younger man, he was spry, he was energetic and athletic, but when he got to the tomb, perhaps because of his younger age, he was a little more timid, he's hesitant, and he just kind of looks in. And he glances into the tomb from the outside, sticking his head, and he realized the grave claws that Jesus was buried in are still lying there, but he didn't have the courage to go into the tomb itself at this moment. He's just standing outside, kind of hesitant. He's not sure to know what to do, but hey, when you don't know what to do, Peter always does something. So verse 6, here comes Peter catching his breath. Simon Peter then came, verse 6, following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together and in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, John says, who come to the tomb first, he then went in also with Peter and he saw and believed. So notice Peter being more of a leader personality, being more of a, a man of action. Peter was a man of courage. He arrives on site and he has no hesitation. He just barges right into the tomb he needs to go in and see what happened and what's going on he starts evaluating things and once peter went to the tomb john tells us there in verse 8 he probably found a little courage from that he then actually went inside of the tomb as well himself and notice what the bible says they saw inside verse 6 says they saw the linen cloths lying there and then verse 7 adds they also saw the handkerchief which was around Jesus' head, but it wasn't lying together with the linen cloths where they were, around, that were around his body, but the, the handkerchief around the head, the head cloth, he says, verse 7, was folded together in a place by itself. Now again, as I said, chapter 19 tells us they bound the body of Jesus with strips of linen and spices as was the custom of the Jews to bury Basically, what they would do in that day, they would use linen cloths and they would wrap each limb separately. So they'd wrap an arm, they'd wrap the other arm, they'd wrap a leg, they'd wrap the other leg, they'd wrap the torso. And then they would put upwards to, as we saw at times, up to 100 pounds of, of spices and myrrh and, and these things into the, the wrappings themselves. And that was a purposeful way in that day and age to deter the odor of the decomposition of the body in a hot Mideastern climate. So as people came near the gravesite or the burial area, loved ones, if they wanted to pay their respects, there wasn't the stench of the decomposing body. And then after doing that, they would typically pour some sort of a liquid substance 
over the linen cloths they wrapped the body with. And, and that was sort of to seal everything in. It, it kind of almost like, remember old casts, the old plaster Paris casts, you know, where it was wet and then it eventually kind of hardened up. And, and this is kind of what ultimately would happen. Now, we know this, again, because John chapter 11 uh, tells us that they would do this and then also they would put a actual cloth, a bigger cloth, over the head and then they would tie it off and cinch the head area. If you remember in John 11, when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he came out of the tomb and the Bible says he came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths and his face was wrapped with the cloth and Jesus had to say, loose him and let him go because he was bound in with all these things and still had the, the, the separate cloth tied over his head. So this is what the body of Jesus would have been in there alike. But notice when they come to the tomb and enter in, what they're actually seeing here that's being described to us. What they don't see is they don't see linen cloths strewn all over the room like a disheveled mess, which probably would have been the case if grave robbers had come into the tomb and tried to unwrap and steal the body of Jesus. It would have been like a, a messy room with clothes all over the place. What they see instead was like a remaining cocoon of the linen cloths that were once around the body of Jesus, still in the place where his body was once laid, but now they kind of look like a flattened tire. So all the same linen cloths are there in the shape of the body, but it's now just been flattened down. And then more than that, they also take note and realize the head cloth, which should have been there flattened down as well, the head cloth, it says in verse 7, Jesus didn't leave it there, but he folded it together and put it over in a place by itself. No doubt, probably just purposely again. I just like Jesus kind of, let me fold up my laundry here. And you know, he doesn't want to leave the room a mess. And so he folds up the head cloth and he puts it somewhere else separate because after he rose from the dead, he then took it off and folded it up. And again, just further validating that his body wasn't stolen. His body was resurrected. He came back from the dead. He defeated miraculously the power of death as he promised that he would. And John tells us once he went inside... It says with Peter, it says there that in verse 8, he then saw and believed. When he then saw these things, he believed, he perceived Jesus had come back to life from the dead. Now, here's what's interesting, and the English doesn't allow us to recognize it, but it's very fascinating. In verses 5, 6, and 8, three times we read, they saw they saw, they saw. But in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8, each time there's a different word in the original Greek that's used for the English word saw. In verse 5, it tells us there that when John first arrived, he didn't go in, but he saw, he just looked in and saw the linen cloths lying there. The term that John uses there in the Greek refers to just a quick glance at things. He kind of just took a quick glance in. And then it tells us in verse 6, when Simon came and he entered right into the tomb, that he saw, same word, saw the linen cloths lying there. And that term that's used means to behold attentively or to give personal attention to, that is to look a little more deeply. But then in verse 8, 
where John says, as we stood there looking, he says, I tell you, I then saw and believed. And the word John uses there in verse 8 for saw is a Greek term which means to deeply consider until you perceive or understand what something means. And what John is saying is that's what led to my faith. That's what led to me believing for myself Jesus was alive. And as I see this, I think, wow, what a beautiful illustration of kind of a process sometimes that people do go through. There are some people all over this planet today who have attended an Easter service and they'll give a quick glance because it's Easter at the concept that maybe Jesus died and rose from the dead. No, they'll, they'll give a quick glance to it and listen to maybe a sermon about it or sing a song or two about it and they'll take a quick glance. And then there are others, like the second term used, who will find a little bit of personal interest and kind of wonder, hmm, I wonder if that is true. I wonder if, I wonder if he really did rise from the dead and they'll perhaps look a little more deeply. But I tell you that God's heart is what happens in verse 8, that each person would deeply consider it that they would look into the reality deeply for themselves and really consider until they perceive for themselves Jesus is really alive and I believe it and I believe it for me and that they would come to a place where through that personal consideration of what it means that Jesus is alive and what it means for them would have an impact upon their own life that it would have an effect upon them personally, that it would result in believing in Jesus for yourself, where you say, now I see it, and I see what it means for me, and I believe it for myself. That's the heart of the Lord, ultimately what happens there in verse 8. Verse 9 says, for as yet they did not know, the idea is understand or perceive the scripture, that he, look what it says, must rise again from the dead. So John humbly admits there, writing in hindsight now years later, he says, to be very honest, I humbly admit, though we had the Old Testament scriptures as his followers, we at that point, he says that day, we didn't quite yet grasp the reality that the Old Testament scriptures had predicted that Jesus must rise from the dead. He's saying we didn't kind of connect the dots till later on. We didn't come to the tomb in faith, John saying. We didn't connect the dots until further down the road. But notice with me, if you would, I love the wording of verse 9, that he must rise again from the dead. Notice Jesus rising from the dead was imperative. It was essential. It was absolutely essential that Jesus must rise again from the dead. He had to defeat the power of sin and death. He didn't have to just die on the cross. Yes, Jesus had to die on the cross. Yes, Jesus died. But he also had to defeat the power of death. He had to overcome the grave and the power of sin, not just the penalty of sin. Jesus, because he is alive and a victorious Lord, therefore, is now available to help us because he's not dead still in a grave. He's a living Savior. He's a risen Lord. Again, think of it this way. If a person was a great example and let's say they taught really great lessons to live by, 
that's of some help to a degree. But if that person who was a great example and taught some great lessons to live by was now dead, they can't really provide any present help. They can't really do much to assist us. Listen, there are a lot of uh, you know, world religions that may say a decent thing or two. But they have a dead leader, a, a dead person who's the head of what they represent. So where's the power to live that way? The difference with Christianity is Jesus said, live this way. And because I'm alive, I can give you the power to live that way. I can help you to live that way because I'm not laying dead in the grave saying, live the way I lived. Try it on your own. Whoo, oy vey, never. Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, he can give us the power to live differently, the capacity, the help, the assistance. Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I am he who lives and was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. See, there are so many benefits to Jesus being alive today, presently, because as a living Savior, that means he can answer our humble cry unto him for salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. If he were dead, he couldn't hear it. If he were dead, he could not provide it for us. And everyone, listen, needs forgiveness. Because the Bible says we all sin, we all fail and fall short of the glory of God, which means there's a measure of guilt that every one of us carries in our lives. Because we've all said things wrong and done things wrong and thought things wrong. We have all sinned against our Creator and our failures and sins would separate us from God. But listen, the good news is because Jesus is alive. And he's already died upon the cross for your sins because he is alive. If you call upon Jesus, if I call upon Jesus in faith and say, Jesus, I understand I'm a sinner and I understand you did what was necessary to be saved. Jesus, would you save me? He's alive and he can do it. Jesus, would you forgive me? Take away my guilt. He's alive and he can take away your guilt. He can forgive you because he has the power to forgive because he's alive to do that, to pardon us from our wrong and to spare us from eternal judgment in hell. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. That's why the Bible says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If he wasn't alive, you could call upon his name. But if you call upon the name of someone in a grave... They can't do anything for you. But Jesus is alive. And that's why Jesus can save and Jesus can forgive and extend such. And as a living Savior, he not only gives us the opportunity to experience freedom from the punishment of our sin, but even in a greater way to experience freedom from that power of sin from dominating and controlling our lives. See, the truth of the matter is this. The Bible teaches that Jesus as a man was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Please understand what that means. That means Jesus lived the same human life that you and I do. He was tempted in every way that you were tempted to do wrong, to say wrong, to think wrong. But Jesus never failed. He lived the sinless, perfect life that you and I don't live. And he had victory over Satan and sin and temptation and the power of sin, which is really good news because that victorious one who lived it perfectly as a human is now alive. And as the one who is alive, as the Savior and the Lord, he now can offer us his same victory and power to overcome what he already overcame. 
Because as the victorious one over sin and temptation in every form, he says, listen, I know you can't beat that. I know you can't stop behaving that way or struggling with that habit or, or living the way you're living. I know you can't, but I can because I already did it. And I can give you my power to do it. And the Bible says the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now available to you and I. Romans 6 and 8 tell us that as we come to Jesus, our lives become one with him spiritually. And Jesus, by his spirit, can take up residence inside of our lives as we embrace him and accept him as our Savior and Lord. And then from the inside out, Jesus gives us the power we need to overcome sin and its struggles that come into our lives. It says that we can walk in newness of life because Jesus is alive and he, by his life, can give us the power. There are some of you here this morning, I guarantee you that if I said to you, would you like to have a new life? Would you like to live different than you've been living for a long time? Sign me up. Listen, there's nothing to sign. What you need to do is you need to say, Jesus, I'm calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved, not just from the penalty of my sin. Yeah, I want to be saved from the penalty of my sin because I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. But Jesus, I'm calling upon the name of the Lord. Would you save me from the power of sin that's been making me live the way that I don't want to live? I don't want to live like this anymore. I want a new life. In Jesus, there's a new life. The Bible tells us that we no longer have to be slaves of sin. Sometimes sin does that. It's not just a momentary struggle here and there. It actually enslaves people. People are enslaved. They're enslaved to some habit or condition or struggle or whatever it may be. And, and they're enslaved to something. Listen, Jesus came to set people free. The Son sets you free. You shall be free indeed. And he has the power to set you free because he's a victorious Lord and King who is alive and overcome all those things already. And I'll tell you one other reason before we move on that Jesus being alive is very helpful to us because it also means there's opportunity to overcome the death process. Because Jesus overcame the death process and therefore the eternal quality of life that he possesses as the eternal Son of God, he can give you and I the gift of God which is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, the Bible says. Because the reality is all of us one day, whether we want to or not, are going to face one appointment that you can't call out on. It's called death. Ten out of every ten people die. Statistics haven't changed. It's probably the only statistic that's never changed in our world. Part of living, listen, part of living is dying at the end. And the thing is, we don't know when that day is going to come. And you can't really live until you're ready to die. Because once you're ready to die, you can live. You can live the way you're intended to live. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me, he shall never die. In other words, Jesus was saying, because I have the eternal quality of life as the Savior and Lord, and I overcame the death process, like you're going to go through the death process, he's saying, I can give you this everlasting eternal quality of life as a gift, which means that when we face death, we don't have to be terrified about it. Death just becomes a, a, a servant to transition us, a doorway to enter us into the fullness of God's presence if our trust is in Jesus. Will we die physically? Yes, but we don't die completely. We just, the physical body expires, but you go on living and you continue living with Christ. 
and in the presence of Christ, in the presence of heaven. And what a glorious thing when death is such a dreaded enemy of so many people. Well, look what happens, verse 10. Then the disciples went away to their own homes, but Mary, she's still there, remember, brokenhearted, stood outside the tomb weeping. So as they depart, she doesn't fully grasp what's happening yet. It says she stands there weeping. The Greek means literally to be convulsively sobbing. Again, she is convulsively sobbing like someone who just lost a loved one. She is heartbroken over his death. And perhaps today, the holiday has given you a first occasion for recognizing that a loved one who was once in your life isn't here anymore. And that's a difficult, hard, painful thing that the holidays do as we walk through the reality of losing our loved ones to death. But listen, let me just say two things. One, that's okay. It's normal. And grieving's a process. And death is something that can be very difficult, but understand there is nobody that can help you more than Jesus. There's no one that can comfort you more and walk you through the valley of the shadow of death than our Lord himself and give you the hope that there is life beyond death and reunions available. Verse 11 goes on to say, and as she wept, watch how the story unfolds, it gets good. She stooped down and looked into the tomb herself and saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. So as Mary looks through the doorway now, Where Jesus' body was, she now sees two angels there. They'd stepped out of the eternal dimension. They're there right where Jesus' body was. And it says in verse 13, 13, they said then to Mary, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. So the angels in response to Mary's peering in and seeing her, they engage her in conversation Keep in mind, the angels know Jesus isn't dead. They know he's alive. So they engage her in conversation as to why she's weeping. Maybe they're a little perplexed in their angelic minds why she's grieving when they know Jesus is alive. And she answers very honestly because she says, because somebody's taken away the Lord and I don't know where they put his body. And she's still struggling through this. I do want you to notice because the next verse says that she then turned and went away after this happened she turned around from the angels please notice briefly with me that the angels two angels from heaven pretty awesome they didn't even phase mary she wasn't interested or she wasn't satisfied with just spiritual angelic beings she wanted jesus she wanted jesus and let me just say by way of that Never, ever be content with just a spiritual experience in life. Yeah, I kind of like a little spiritual experience once in a while. Never be content even with angels from heaven. Seek Jesus. Worship Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. And He is the only one, you'll see, who can satisfy your soul. So verse 14 says, When she had said this, she then turned around and saw Jesus standing there but did not know at this moment that it was Jesus. So she turns around. The risen Lord Jesus is standing right there in front of her. And Jesus now wants to encounter Mary to help her. He wants to reveal himself to her personally. Yet the Bible tells us, look at it there in verse 14, for some reason she did not recognize at that moment anyway that that was actually Jesus standing there in front of her. Now, 
We can only speculate. That could be maybe because her eyes are so puffy and blurry with tears from her convulsive weeping. Her vision's a little bit distorted still. It's also very dark, shadowy. Jesus could be right outside the tomb. It's still dark and she can't quite make out his facial recognition. Or it could be that honestly her eyes were even like momentarily restrained supernaturally by the Lord until just the right moment that he could reveal himself to her because he wanted to build up the intensity of the wonderful experience when she really realized that it was him. For whatever reason, she doesn't know, and that's why this dialogue unfolds. Verse 15, Jesus says to her woman, same as the angels, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? Notice Jesus engages her to kind of draw out her heart. He's, he's drawing out her desire for him. Whom are you seeking? Mary, it says, supposing him to be the gardener, Jesus must have looked pretty common, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. So she's so desperate to encounter the Lord, she thinks, maybe this is like the local gardener of this tomb in this area here, and maybe for some reason somebody has instructed him to remove the body of Jesus. So she says, Look, sir, just if you've moved his body, just tell me where you put his body. I'll go get it. Now, let me just say, maybe Mary was really buff. <laughs> but this is a woman saying, tell me where the body of a grown man is, dead weight, limp body. And she's saying, I'll go get his body and I'll carry it myself. It took two men just to get him down from the cross. I think Mary just so loves the Lord. The idea is... is there's no such thing as too much effort for Jesus because she so loved the Lord. She wasn't thinking about how much it would require or sacrifice. And you know what? When the love of Christ compels you, no object, no obstacle matters. You're willing to do anything for the Lord and it's a natural response out of your love for him. Well, verse 16, this must have been amazing. Jesus then said to her, Mary. And she turned around and said to him, Rabboni which is to say, teacher. So at this point, Jesus, knowing Mary sincerely seeking him, she wants to find him. The suspense has built itself. He gives her a supernatural revelation of himself, showing and revealing he is alive. And notice how he does it there in verse 16 with just one simple, powerful word. Just one word is all it took from Jesus to reveal himself to this person. He intimately calls her by name and just says, Mary. And when he just says her name, Jesus speaks to her in such a direct and personal way, she instantly knows for herself that this is the voice of the Lord. She recognizes it's Jesus and she turns around with overwhelming excitement and she says, Rabboni. In other words, it's you. I mean, imagine, you're alive. It's you. You're really alive. And I can't imagine the powerful experience it was for her to hear the voice of Jesus and to have an experience with him. And notice with me too, it's not what Mary saw that made her perceive the Lord. It was what she heard. She heard the voice of the Lord. And it resonated with her heart. It resonated with her inner being. She heard Jesus' voice speak to her in a personal way. And now she has this direct, 
intimate, life-changing, personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. And can I say this morning, that is exactly what the Lord Jesus still wants for every single person. To have an intimate, direct, life-changing, personal encounter with the Lord Jesus for themselves. He wants to reveal himself to you. He wants you to be able to hear his voice speaking directly to your heart in a personal way and have that moment where he calls your name and as it happens in your life, you realize who he is and everything about him and what he should mean to you that he is the risen one. And my question to you this morning would be, has that happened for you? Has it happened for you yet? July 12, 1992, it happened for me. It happened. I had heard about Jesus. I heard he died on the cross. I heard he rose from the dead. I knew other Christians who professed to follow Jesus. But on July 12, 1992, I heard him call my name. I heard him speak to my heart. And I had an encounter with Jesus. I had an experience with Jesus and know that today you can experience the same. He is here. He's alive. He wants to reveal himself to you in the same way. Well, look how the text concludes. Jesus then said to her, Mary, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. And I imagine with all the excitement, she probably just clinched on the Jesus with a, with a bear hug here at this moment. I mean, just she's so excited thinking, I found you. You're never getting away from me again. And so she grasps a hold of Jesus and Jesus has to say to her, interesting, Mary, do not cling to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. Now, why? It could be he's saying, Mary, you don't have to keep clinging to me because I'm not going to instantly ascend. We know from the Bible, Jesus stood around for about 40 days after his resurrection, appearing and reappearing, stepping in and out of the eternal dimension, revealing to people that he was alive. Mary was just the first privileged one. So he could say, Mary, I'm going to be around. You don't have to keep me here. I'll be available as I was before. It also could be that Jesus was trying to say to her, Mary, don't cling to my physical presence because, Mary, things are going to change. I'm going to send now to my Father. And no longer, Mary, he's perhaps saying, are things going to be as they were before. Things are going to change in the days ahead, Mary. So don't cling to what you've known before. Don't cling to my physical presence now. They would relate to Jesus not in a body as a man, but we relate to Jesus now by faith in a spiritual way, by his spiritual presence until he comes back to this earth literally once again, which he will. But now we see one, we love one with our eyes of faith, though we don't touch and hold him physically. He then tells her, but Mary, go to my brethren. Tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God, and Mary came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So Mary wasn't just privileged to have the first encounter with Jesus. She also gets the privilege of being the first ambassador, the first missionary, if you would, of Jesus Christ to go out and spread the news, to go tell the disciples she'd seen the Lord, what he had spoken to her. She sent forth to give personal testimony of what her encounter with the Lord just was. Why? Because Jesus wanted her to encourage everyone of the news that Jesus is victorious. He's alive. And not only is he alive, he's ascending back to heaven, which means they could celebrate he's now going to sit on heaven's throne as the Lord of all. 
And let me say this morning, that reality is what we now celebrate, that Jesus is Lord of all, not just on Easter, next Sunday too. And the Sunday after that, He's alive. He is Lord of all. And please notice in our text this morning, Mary's life totally changed that day. Totally changed. Why? Because she had a personal encounter with Jesus. And Jesus is the same. The same is available to every one of us. Shall we pray together?